0: Come unto Jesus and rest in His love. May the Lord help us to do just that this morning, both believer and unbeliever alike. May we come to Him and take Him at His word. Let's turn our Bibles together this morning to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, and we'll find our place this morning beginning in verse 22. Matthew chapter 17 in verse 22, and we'll read together down through Verse 27. Matthew chapter 22, excuse me, 17, verses 22 down through verse 27. We are coming to the conclusion of Matthew chapter 17. It's been a wonderful study, a fruitful study in the life of Christ and his ministry to his disciples. We now come to verse 22. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. In the third day, he will be raised up. Now, the disciples, in hearing this, the response is given to us, and they were exceedingly grieved or sorrowful. Verse 24, When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Verse 26, Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Now, verse 27, nevertheless, lest we offend them, those Verse 24, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Verse 27, now lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that, take that and give it to them for me and for you. Well, this is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing upon the reading, teaching, and preaching of his word here this morning. If you are a disciple, if you are someone who claims to be a disciple, if you are a child of God, I want to remind all of us here this morning that you are still enrolled in school. Now many of you may have graduated from high school or trade school or college or some type of program many years ago and in your mind you may think that your days of schooling are over but that is not true. I want to remind all of us here this morning that if you are a disciple of Jesus, you are in the school of faith here this morning. Not all of us in the school of faith, while we are all in the school of faith, salvation, not all of us in the school of faith are in the same testing, same degree, taking the same exams on the same grade level. And I don't say that to be condescending. I say that to make a point that we're all on varying degrees and aspects of our sanctification journey. Amen. We experience this testing. We experience this reality of what it means to walk by faith in Christ day after day, moment after moment, week after week, as long as he tarries. But it's a reminder to us this morning that we, as his disciples, are members, are students in the school of faith and discipleship. Here, the context of Matthew chapter 17 is that Jesus's focus is now completely turned into training his disciples. His disciples are enrolled in this academy, and he is preparing them for his coming death, burial, and resurrection and his ascension back to the Father again. And what we've already learned up until this point in Matthew chapter 17 is that as disciples of Jesus in verses 1 through 13, we took away from the transfiguration that we are to listen to Christ. He is the Son of God. We heard from the Father in that passage, this is my beloved Son, hear Him, listen to Him. That's the first lesson we learned out of many lessons overarchingly in this chapter. The second lesson we learned, again, overarchingly, verses 14 through 21, is our continual need to trust Christ and His power, to rest in Him, to trust in Him, to place our faith in Him for life and in ministry. Today, the key thing that we'll see in our verses, in verses 22 through 27, is the reminder for us as disciples is that we never get away from the command and the call to obey Christ. To take Him at His word. No matter how odd it may seem, no matter how unusual the command may be, we are called as His disciples to obey Him. That means to take Him at His word. Now again, Jesus' focus is on teaching his disciples. And there is a cycle that we see here That is, Jesus is moving here in Matthew chapter 17. Now moving into Matthew 18 and 19, preparing for the cross. Jesus teaches a principle, a precept, a lesson to his disciples. They hear it. They learn. Then they are tested. Then they stumble or falter in some way. Then he patiently teaches them again. And then they learn the real essence by experience of the lesson that he was trying to teach them. This is a cycle that we see. In fact, we could say it like this. This is the path of discipleship. We don't glory in our disbelief and we don't glory in our struggles. We don't glory in the the parts where we fall. But we also recognize that in following Jesus, that the path of following Jesus goes forward, onward, and upward. We stumble at times, but it's progressive it's continual proverbs 24:16 for a righteous man may fall 7 times but he rises again what we find here is jesus is pouring himself into these 12 men is that he's patient with them we've seen that haven't we this patient loving shepherding preparing work of christ following jesus in discipleship means that he is faithful and committed to us it means growth it means Light obeyed means more light given. As we grow in Christ, it means more teaching. And more teaching then means more testing. And it then means also more stumbling. Isn't that what we experience week after week here, church? At least I do as your pastor. We study, we hear, we're exposed to truth. We gather. It's, it's normal at the command of Christ for the church and God's people to gather and to be exposed to His word and His truth and His teaching. And we love teaching in a sense, in the sense of we love to learn. We love to learn more about him, not for the sake of learning, but it's teach us, Christ, show us your glory. But with that teaching comes testing. Oh, how glorious the Lord's day is to be with you here together with the people of God in his presence. But then as we go into Monday, the second day of the week, and then Tuesday and Wednesday, sometimes the glory has departed and we experience the testing of what it was we sang about that we said we resolved in and what we believed in on the Lord's Day with His people, with the team, rah-rah. But then we go into the callings that God has called us to. We take that teaching that we have learned, and we are tested. And I'll just tell you, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And so many people live inoculated, insular lives as professing disciples. But the problem is, is there's, never, there's never any testing. Now, that's a whole other message for a whole other time. But I would just tell you, do not grow discouraged at your testing because it is a sure sign that God is at work in you. He's leading you. He's preparing you. And when you stumble, do not become so discouraged that you desire to throw in the towel. He will be patient with you. He will lovingly teach you and guide you through repentance, your repentance and your confession of your failure and your lack of faith, and you seek His face for grace again and again. Friends, when you fall and when you stumble, when you grow, don't panic. You are right on the path that God has ordained for you. Do do not panic. You're right on schedule. Welcome and just be reminded that this is the school of faith. We're walking by faith and not by sight. Now, as we look at our text this morning, verses 22 through 27, we'll hang our thoughts. As we at the text, we'll look at the headings like this. Number one, we see the preview here in verse 22. Secondly, we'll see the payment in verse 24. Thirdly, we'll see the perspective in verses 25 through 27. And then fourthly, we'll see the provision of Christ in verse 27. And then lastly, we'll make our application with the Lord's help of the text. Notice, first of all, with me, the preview that Jesus gives here in verse 22 of Matthew 17. Notice the text, it says, Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And the disciples hearing this, they were exceedingly sorrowful. What is Jesus doing here? Well, we are familiar with this summary account of the gospel. We are. But the disciples are not. Not the full articulation of what Jesus is giving him and giving them. And so he is continuing to remind them and to teach them of something that they have a hard time wrapping their mind around. Here Jesus is giving a preview of his coming death. He's spending less and less time with the general audience... And he's pouring himself into intimacy with these disciples. And he's inserting all throughout these practical lessons of ministry, the one that we've just seen just before, verse 22, is the failure to cast out the demon out of the little boy where Jesus tells them that this failure is one of an absence of faith and trust and rest in his power. Looking to him for power and strength and sustenance in their faith and ministry. Intersprinkled all throughout this is the reminder of the cross. A reminder of his imminent suffering, his coming suffering, his coming death and his coming resurrection. In fact, this is the third time in so many verses that Jesus has just gone straight to the heart of the gospel. In fact, Matthew 16, 21 was the first mention where Jesus articulates this summary of the gospel message. Matthew 17, verse 12, just a few verses back in verse 12, was the second time that he reminds them of what is to come. Now, for the third time, Jesus is giving them the truth of the cross. what Scripture reveals to us is that, as we look at the summary of the gospel, is that Jesus is not helpless as He goes to the cross. And Jesus was not passive in going to the cross. Obvious, I know, but friends, we need to be reminded of this. So many people view Jesus and His sacrificial work as simply a passive act. They look at Jesus and they think of the cross and they remember his sacrificial work as something where he was the victim, passive, simply a victim at the hands of wicked men. Here, Jesus reminds us that he is fixing his face like a flint and heading with resolve to the cross. He's not a victim, friends. Jesus is the sacrifice for his people. Luke 9:51 says this, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's Isaiah language. Prophet Isaiah language uses the phrase explicitly, his face was fixed like a flint. Listen, Jesus was not a victim at the hands of burly Roman soldiers. We're not going to get into the full articulation of the physique of Jesus or any of that. Isaiah, the scripture really doesn't spend a lot of time talking about his physique. But one thing we know for clear is he was common and everyday. But he was a carpenter. He worked with stone and wood. You ever work with stone and wood? Whenever you work with stone and wood, lots of things happen. Number one, you start getting worn out fast. It's heavy. Stone and wood is heavy. Uh, Stone and wood means splinters and, and sores and scratches and all of those types of things. Whatever Jesus was, one thing He was not was an effeminate pansy. You could just take that to the bank. And whatever He was, He was faithful to His calling as a man that God had ordained for Him to come as the Son of Man as He manifested Himself in flesh. But listen, Jesus did not go scared to the cross. He's prophesying. He's teaching, he's shepherding, he's reminding, and he sets his face resolutely like a flint to the cross. So he'll later explain that he willingly accepted the cross in order that all things that were written through the prophets about the Son of Man, so that they will be accomplished, Luke 18, verse 31. John 10, 15 tells us that he willingly laid down his life. He says, no one has taken my life away from me. So if you ever have a question about, was Jesus a victim? at the hands of wicked men. In one sense, on the most fundamental basic sense, that took place. But notice what he says. He says, no one has taken my life from me. I lay it down of my own initiative. And I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to lay it up, raise it up, take it up again. Now, regarding this summary of the gospel message, Mark adds in his account, Mark 9, 32, that the disciples did not understand what he's saying, but they were afraid to ask him. You ever been that way as a student? <laughs> you don't want to be the one to raise your hand and to say, I don't understand. Oftentimes, as if you're an educator, you're a teacher, this is often the case in the classroom. There's, uh, you don't know that they're not getting the concepts, but from the student perspective, they're afraid of being thought of as uncool, dumb, whatever the, the motives for not raising their hand, saying, teacher, I don't understand, could you give more light? Could you give more clarity? Well, Mark says that is happening in the hearts and the minds of the disciples. They did not understand this statement. They were afraid to ask them. Behold the shepherding care of Jesus here, friends. Jesus understood their slow comprehension. Jesus also knows of their small faith. Jesus understands that they need repeated reminders. And so he patiently shepherds them and is telling them what is coming. After Jesus gave the twelve, the third prediction here of his death and resurrection, we see that Peter now receives in our text, in just a moment, we see that he will receive a personal one-on-one tutorial of the reality that Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. Notice with me in our text this summary of the gospel. If I were to ask you this morning a question, many people think they know the gospel but they don't know how to articulate or summarize the gospel in a succinct way. Here we have a summary of what is the good news of Jesus Christ. A summary of what is the gospel. Notice how the, his incarnation is revealed to us here. The Son of Man, verse 5. Jesus reveals to us, even going back to verse 5 of the transfiguration, that, that he is the beloved Son of God by the Father. Here in our verse it says the Son of Man. It points to the fact of His incarnation. Jesus, when you see Jesus, He is the Son of God, fully divine. He is also the Son of Man, as He calls Himself here, fully human. God in the flesh comes. The truth of the gospel is that God Himself comes to earth, Emmanuel, God with us. Why must He come? Matthew 1.21, He comes to save His people from their sins, Only God can satisfy the justice of God. Only God can save man from his sin. As we said earlier, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done, can do, or will ever do that we are saved, church. It's only by his mercy, it's only by his grace that we are saved. Only God can make atonement for the sins of his people. So God is Emmanuel. He comes to dwell with us. He comes in the form of human flesh. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. Philippians 2.8, which our brother read earlier, reminds us, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. His incarnation. Notice the second pointing to the summary of the gospel is his betrayal. The Son of Man, Jesus says, is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. No doubt, Judas is present as he's a part of the inner circle of the disciples. And he's hearing this. And My mind simply goes to, as Jesus is teaching and shepherding his disciples, telling them that the Son of Man will be betrayed, what is Judas thinking? What's going through Judas' mind? Does Judas, is he aware at this point of, His betrayal of what his plans are. Is it coming in his own thinking and and mind? Matthew 26, 24 tells us, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it was written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Notice that passage, Matthew 26, 25. Then Judas, who was betraying him, active tense, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, You have said it. Here, Jesus is predicting his betrayal. In fact, John 13, 18, he tells his disciples, he says, I do not speak concerning all of you, speaking of his betrayal. Notice, he says, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you, before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Remember, just a few lessons ago, A few sermons ago, we were talking about that shepherding care of Christ. He gives the disciples information that they will need before they need it so that when it happens, they will remember that He has prepared them for this moment. Do you remember that, church? Here, He's doing it again. I tell you this, what? His coming betrayal, so that when I am betrayed, you may know that this was not a shock and surprise to me. His betrayal, Jesus Predicted it before it ever came to pass. The Scriptures predicted it. Acts 2.23, Peter in his sermon says to the Jewish leaders, he says, "...Christ, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by wicked and lawless hands, you have crucified and put Him to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be held by it. For David says concerning Him, "...I foresaw the Lord always before my face." For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Listen, Jesus knows of his coming betrayal because he was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, verse 8. His incarnation, his betrayal. Notice the third thing that Jesus, in summary, gives to his disciples here is, in that they shall kill him. This is the death of Christ. Now, we're not going to unpack this. This is not the main point. This is just one of our points this morning. But I just want to say this and remind all of us here this morning that Jesus literally died. Jesus here is prophesying his coming death. And I want to remind all of us that he died. He died a literal death. This is the death of Christ previewed. And then he died upon the cross. The scriptures teach this. The Scriptures also teach why, church. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul, in his summary of the Gospel, says this, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Romans 5.6, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5.8, Christ died for us. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom, Paul says, I am chief. He must die. For our sins to satisfy the just wrath of God. Friends, this is the gospel. And there are people who don't believe that Jesus literally died upon the cross. They call it all types of things. The swooning theory. He fainted. He faked it. All these other theories that are out there. But I'm just going to tell you. He previewed his his death and he died. Scripture is clear. Witnesses are clear. The testimony of scripture is fulfilled and is clear. And praise the Lord for his death. We don't celebrate in death. Death is the great curse of man. But we celebrate in his death. Guilty, vile, and helplessly, we spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, the author says, Isaac Watts, can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. To understand why Christ must die is to need to understand the holiness and the just wrath of God. It demands a full payment for his perfect law which was was broken. And just before Christ died upon the cross, John nineteen thirty, he announces to everyone, for all time, it is finished. And church, I just want to remind you this morning of the good news of the gospel is that it's finished. It's finished. This morning we're not working for grace with God. This morning, we're not laboring for mercy with God. This morning, in this hour, we're not working towards favor and keeping His happiness upon us by what we do and how we serve Him and saying, God, are you happy with me now? Lord, are you pleased with me now? Lord, as I serve you here, are you happy with me now? Lord, are you happy yet? Are you satisfied? Are you at peace? Listen, church, children of God, sons and daughters of Christ, let me just tell you, His work is finished. It is not your work, it was His work. And it's finished. It's finished for all time rest in that come to him and rest in that reality and when you find yourself not resting in him and getting back on the hamster wheel of works righteousness and saying god i'm going to do this for you are you pleased are you happy are you satisfied with me now friend repent of that repent of your unbelief repent of your scorecard christianity Repent of your works righteousness and trying to maintain the favor of God. And rest in his finished work. Rest in his death. And then live, as Jesus will say, for the sons of Christ are free. I want you to know, you're free this morning. Now, in your freedom, go live for your king. You are free. Now, because of that freedom, you don't go live for you. Because you're free in Christ, you get to serve your king. You get to and you want to go live in your freedom as he gives you the grace to serve him, to grow in him, to mirror him, to look like him, to spread his gospel, to expand his kingdom. Friends, behold the summary of the gospel and rest in it, believe in it, and continue in it. Fourthly, we see this little heading. It's his pointing to His resurrection. In the third day, He will be raised up. Now, this is Jesus' summary of what He will do. Turn with me just briefly to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Just turn with me briefly there, because it's important that if we're asked the question, do you, can you give me the gospel? can you give me the summary of the gospel? Or, hey friend, I know you go to Grace Church. You're one of those Christians. What is the gospel? Now, as you're turning there to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, I just want to remind you, church, that all types of answers are given to what the gospel is, and it actually is a distortion of the gospel. No, we get carried away in our Christianese, and we get carried away in our language of service and discipleship and Life in the church and within the body of Christ. And we put the word gospel on everything. But that's actually not the gospel. To add to the gospel or to subtract from the gospel is to negate the gospel. The gospel, and even now, I've just said that word maybe 20 times in this sermon till now. So lest I keep saying it and you get confused and just tune out gospel. Ding, ding, ding. We know that word. It's the good news. The good news of What? Well, as we go do gospel work, now think about it. I'm going to make a correlation to our service for Christ because so many times we say, um, you know, we're, doing a, we're, we're working for the gospel and we're doing this. Now, what, whatever it is we may be doing may not be wicked, evil, or good. In fact, it's cups of cold water in the name of Jesus. It may be giving food at the food pantry. It may be putting coats on the sick and the need, or on the, those who need them. It may be all these practical things, listen here, that flow out of the gospel. Flow out of what Christ has done for us, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel, which is what? Well, we have just look at Jesus's summary of it. Now look at Paul's summary, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Paul says, for I delivered to you, church at Corinth, first of all, that which I also received. Paul, a disciple of Jesus, says this is what I received from him, how Christ died for our sins ding 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 we just saw that jesus previewed it and showed his disciples this is what will be what will happen now paul on the other side of the cross says i received this message about how christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures friends there's a direct correlation and connection to what jesus is saying will happen previewing His coming, summary of the gospel, which is the good news of his death, burial, betrayal, resurrection, ascension. Listen, this is the gospel. This is what we mean when we say, believe the gospel. This is what we mean when we say, hear the gospel, repent and turn from your sins and rest in this good news. Gospel means what? Being saved means what? Rest in this good news. What's the good news? That Jesus has come. That Jesus died or was betrayed. He was betrayed and then he died upon the cross. He did not die in the sense of wicked men killed him. He died in the sense of God's wrath was poured out upon him for the sins of his people. As the son of man, yes. He gave up his life and he died. His death was one of dying in our place as the son of God. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And upon that cross, he bore my sin and your sin upon himself. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel, that he died so that we may have life. He must die. He did die. Paul says, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Behold the beauty of the gospel. Here, Jesus in our text, Matthew 17, previewing it. Paul standing upon that reality it's done he's risen he's ascended and now this is the message preached it's why Paul can say Romans 1:16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel why would we ever be ashamed of the gospel church the gospel is the good news and in all of our passing out of bread water coats and good deeds and good works and all those things we can't negate to preach the gospel we must communicate the gospel. And you say, LeGrand, you're getting worked up. Yes, because we are those that people come to to get the good news of the gospel. And if we're not careful, we never give it. But we delude ourselves by saying we're doing a gospel work. We're doing this. We're doing that. But the question we must ask ourselves is, do I ever communicate this gospel? And I hope the answer to that is yes. There's a stupid, excuse me, I wasn't allowed to say the word stupid growing up, but there's a stupid, so every time I say it, where's my mom and dad? But there's a stupid reality that, I can't even phrase it because I've kind of blocked it out of my mind, but do good works, love people, be good and kind, and if necessary, use words to preach the gospel. Let me just tell you, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I get the point of the message, but there's no communicating the gospel without using words. This is words, this is actions, this is what Christ has done. And so we cannot let our, quote, listen, our good works nullify the gospel. We cannot let our cold water keep us from sharing the gospel. We cannot let our giving out of coats and our love of neighbor and our taking of food say where we delude ourselves, we're loving people in the gospel. But listen, that's actually not love if you never actually share the gospel. The good news of the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. Friends, may the Lord help keep Grace Church anchored to the gospel, and not to where we say it so much where we don't even know what it means anymore, but where we truly know what it is, we live it, we rest in it, and because of it, it powers every aspect of life, faith, and practice. Secondly, not only the preview, but notice with me, secondly, the payment that is brought to the scene here. This is an unusual text, verses 24 through 27. The text says, now, when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter, notice who they come to, and they said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Verse 25, and Peter responded and said, just simply, kind of, it sounds defensive in a sense, yes, yes, he does. So Jesus brings his disciples, they've been away, if you know the context, they've been traveling, they've been in other parts. They're now coming back to the home base of ministry of sorts, which was Capernaum. And one of the things we find very quickly is the miraculous power of Jesus, his divinity upon display. But I just want to remind us, is he knew what was coming. This is not a shock, this is not a surprise, we'll see more about that here in the text. But he knew that in bringing his disciples back to Capernaum here and now, that this test would be given to his disciples, namely Peter. Jesus brings him just here for this test at this time and this place. The test is that the tax would be required. Very quickly, we're going to move quickly through this this section, but I just want to teach us and guide us through this. This is a temple tax. This is not when we hear the word taxes, we think in the sense of Roman occupation, Roman government. But most directly, this is a temple tax where the leaders of the temple would come around to the people of God and they would collect this tax for the operation and sustaining of the temple ministry, the work and sustaining and the work and care of the temple building and all that took place there at the Jerusalem temple. Now let's just hit pause for a second and just why is this happening? What does this mean in the life of God's people? Well, it goes all the way back to the tabernacle. And so looking to Exodus chapter 30, going back to Exodus chapter 30 verse 11, we see really the beginning and the genesis of what this tax is as it's it's introduced to God's people. So track with me here. Don't be lost in the weeds, but we need to go back to Exodus chapter 30 verse 11. Back in Exodus 30, verse 11, we, we see that the word of the Lord comes to Moses and the people of Israel. Exodus 30:11, Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 12, "When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. It's a reminder of what God has done for His people and redeeming them out of, out of Egypt. Every man shall take or give a ransom for himself to the Lord, And when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. Notice the the guidelines and the rules. Verse 15, the rich shall not give more than the poor. This is a set rate, flat rate tax, if you will, to the people of God. It's not based upon His provision or His blessing of you. Everyone gives the same. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, and you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel, and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord. A memorial to make atonement for yourselves. Throughout the history of God's people, the temple then replaced the tabernacle. These taxes literally supported the work of uh, funding the tabernacle. All the pieces and components, the metals and the gold or the silver parts that God prescribed. God prescribed of every detail of what he wanted in the tabernacle. It all had a set place and design and, and metrics and it had to be funded. And this is how God funded it from his people. Well, over the course of Jewish tradition, this continued to the support of the temple. In fact, over the course of God's people throughout Nehemiah and the other leaders that God would raise up, they would adjust this tax. Nehemiah chapter 10 verse 32 tells us that because the Jews were so poor coming back from Babylon that Nehemiah adjusted the tax to half a shekel. Finally, we have here in the first century these men coming to Peter with this tradition continuing, this obligated tax... To keep funding the function of the temple. What all happened at the temple, by the way? Atonement was being made. The reminder that God's people must make atonement for their sins. They must look to and rest in the work of God. That God will one day send a Messiah, a Redeemer for His people. All of it was practical, symbolic, and ordered by the Lord. But here, men come to Peter. Verse 24, does your teacher not pay the temple tax and he said yes this is weird this is awkward why is there an assumption that Jesus doesn't pay the tax number one I don't think this is malicious or evil I think this is literally this is the time as many commentators say this is what these leaders are doing and then they see Jesus and his men come in they've been away and so they're just jumping on the fact oh we haven't seen you guys now do you guys pay the tax so, it might be a little bit of a test. We know your rabbi. We know what he teaches. We know what he says. But does he support the work of the temple? This is a key question for Peter. Notice that they come to Peter and not to the treasurer. Who was the treasurer? Judas. It would be normal. You would think you would go to the person who oversees the money. But they recognize who the leader is. And they come to Peter. And Peter, like he always does, just answers off the cuff. And as we'll see, impromptu. Uh, imprudently. And he just simply defensively says, yes, of course he does. Jesus, I've never seen Jesus sin. I've never seen Jesus do anything. I'm sure he he always does that which is right. Sure, sure, he pays the taxes. So we see this payment, this question that is introduced. Thirdly, notice with me the perspective that Jesus then gives to Peter. And this is why this text is so interesting. It's almost as if Peter is either getting a knock at the door and these men come to him or he's walking home. He's just in a situation where these men ask him, But then Peter comes to his home. It's known that his home was in Capernaum. Evidently, Jesus is in the home, whether Jesus is further in the house and Peter's at the door, or whether Peter's outside and he then comes into the home. We're just then brought to this scene where the perspective of all of this is given, where Jesus simply says this, verse 25. All of a sudden, Jesus simply says this. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers. In other words, from those who are within or from those who are without. Peter, hearing and contemplating verse twenty six, said to him, Well, from strangers. Jesus said to him, Peter, remember this, then the sons are free. What is Jesus saying here? Well, here, Jesus is taking a legitimate tax that has been involved by God's decree and order in the history of the Jewish people, and is evidently still being practiced Until this hour. Jesus takes a secular then example. A metaphor to teach Peter an eternal truth. A gospel truth we could say. So let's let's do just that. Notice what Jesus says. He gives them this perspective in the form of a question. I love questions in the sense of helpful questions. I try to sometimes in our messages and our times together. Form things uh, in the form of a question. Because that's what we see Jesus doing. Questions get us to think. Questions cause us to consider. Questions cause us to analyze and to think before we speak. And here Jesus does what he does so well. He asks Simon a question. Simon, from whom do the kings of the earth take their customs or taxes? In this society, in this custom, there is a potentate, a king, a ruler. And he funds the government. He funds the uh, upkeep of the castle, his extended properties, really the whole of government through taxing the taxation of the people. We're not going to do a study on this and go all the way through Western Civ and go all the way to the Magna Carta, but you can do that yourself as you study the taxation and the liberties and the decrees that have been made as people have processed this among people groups throughout the history of man. But this is just the reality. This is how kingdoms are funded. This is how potentates keep their horses sharp and strong and new and young, ready for battle. This is how they pay their soldiers. This is how they do all of that. And Jesus picks up on this common understanding, this common language, and says, Peter, do kings tax their own? Do they tax junior? And the answer to that is no. Think about it with me. If the king needs taxes, somebody who's exempt from the taxes is the family. Many of you have come this morning, just to give another, yet another example, and you have participated in the offering. That's beautiful and that's good. But some of you are trying to teach your children, and you've given your children an offering to give this morning. Now, we know what's happening here. We know what is taking place. But the reality is that offering is not their offering. That re- offering is your offering. It's coming from your coffers, from your bank account. Jesus picks up on this idea and says, Kings, listen, they don't tax their sons for the funding of their government. They tax the strangers. They tax those who are without. To tax their son is counteractive. They're taxing themselves. It's common sense, Peter. So he asks him this question. He says, they tax them from their sons or for strangers. And Peter said to him, from strangers. And Jesus said to him, yes, and the sons are free. Here, we see that this question that is imposed upon Jesus is not incumbent upon him. Jesus is the Son of God, and he is the Son of Man. Jesus doesn't have to support the temple, because he is the temple. Jesus doesn't have to support the work of the priest, because he's the great high priest. He's the last high priest. And he has sat down after his summary of the gospel message and his fulfilling of the gospel message. He is, as is popular to say today, he is him. He's the high priest. He is the temple. He is salvation. He is Emmanuel, come to us, God with us. So Peter, I don't have to pay the tax, the temple tax. But Peter... They don't understand all that I am. They are deaf. They are blind. Lest we be a stumbling block to them, Peter. I don't have to pay this tax. I am the temple. God doesn't dwell there. I am God in the sense of in relation to the work of what I claim to be and who I am. For me, I don't need to go to the temple, Jesus says, so that I may commune with my father. I am God. I am the Son of God. I am the Son of God. Let me just remind all of us, beginning of Matthew 17, God the Father, in His transfiguration, He has shown His glory. He has proved He is who He says He is. And we saw that God the Father speaks and says, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. And here Jesus reminds Peter what God has already affirmed over His life and ministry. Then we come lastly and fourthly to the provision in verse 27. Notice what Jesus says, nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook. Now, you fishermen are listening carefully at this point. Go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. And take that fish, that money, and give it to them for me and for you. Well, we're going to quickly move into our concluding thoughts and our application and unpack our last point. Verse 27 is what we see here. This is an interesting miracle. By the way, I will not take our time this morning to walk through stories that I know of, fishermen that I'm acquainted with, and the stories of things that they have found in fishes' bellies and uh, hooked in the fishes and and rings in their tummies and all those types of things. You've heard those stories, and I have too. It's not crazy or uncanny to think of A scenario where there's a coin in a fish's, notice here, belly. It's not crazy or hard to fathom or imagine some type of ornate, valuable object within the body of a fish. But that's not what we have here this morning. What we have here is the divine power, sovereignty, omniscience, and omnipotence of God all on display. So let's unpack that. Application point number one, and may the Lord help us as we apply These truths to our heart is behold the providence and the sovereignty of God working in the ordinary details of life, such as death and taxes, such as needs that we have, such as the ordinary requirements of life. Does Jesus care about what is imposed upon our lives, about about the things that we owe and just the practical details of life? And I want to tell you this morning, the answer is for his disciples, to those who follow him, yes, yes. There's nothing insignificant to God. There's no small things to God. Friend, some people wonder is, is this too big for God? The answer to that is no, there's nothing too big for God. But what about is this too small for God? And we have to remind ourselves that everything is small to God. There is nothing that's not small to God. Is this too small? To God, and the answer to that is no. Behold the providence and the sovereignty of God working in the ordinary details of life. Here in our text, Jesus sends Peter to do the impossible. Peter, go fishing with a hook. Have you ever seen Jesus fishing, uh, uh, Peter fishing with a hook? No. What is Peter always fishing with? Nets. This guy's, he's the real deal. He's an expert. He would come down here and participate in the Bass Pro and show them how it's done. Tournament over here on, on the lake. I'm being facetious, you get that. Everything we see of Peter and his family operation is that they are commercial fishermen. They know their trade. Here, Jesus is taking something that Peter knows well, and he's allowing him to use it, but for the sake of doing it his way and teaching him a lesson. What Jesus is telling Peter to do is impossible. Peter, who normally fishes with a net, is instructed to take a hook. By the way, this is the only mention of fishing with a hook in all of the New Testament. Jesus sends Peter to, to fish. And out of the whole Sea of Galilee, there will be not just any fish, but one specific fish. And the coin will not be in its stomach, as in the sense of a little boy's walking along. And, hey, make a wish and flip it like we do our wishing wells. And it happens all the time. I'm sure coins fell out of a pocket or whatever. A coin finds its way into the water and into the belly of the fish. That's not amazing. What's amazing is the, the coin to the exact fish... That Peter will catch it's in its mouth that means Jesus is I mean have you ever seen a coin in a fish's mouth did you just think about it with me for a second what does a fish's mouth look like you get it and there's a coin there so so Jesus is prophesying that the exact fish that that Peter will catch there's a coin that the fish has just kind of sucked up and taken up and it's right there for Peter to see to retrieve he doesn't even have to cut the fish open And kill it. In fact, many commentators surmise that this this was more than likely a catfish, a scavenger fish. It would be considered unclean. One that would pick up this fish. Jesus ordered him to look not in its stomach, but our text it says to look in its mouth, and there you will find the money. Friends, I've not even touched half of the providential miracles that are involved in this whole scene and the setting. But you know what? It's no problem for me to believe it. Jesus said it. The scriptures teach it and I rest in it, no problem at all, behold the providence of God, stand amazed at his foreknowledge, his omniscience, his working, as John Piper says, and I know I say it often, God's involved in, I think he says 10,000, I'll just go ahead and say, God's involved in about a million things that are not only in your life most directly, but surrounding your life, and on and on, the the lives of the people you know, and on and on and on and on, ad infinitum, and you're aware of maybe two of them. Just behold and rest in the providence of God. Stand amazed and worship Him. Secondly, we see from this text that Jesus provides for the needs of those who follow Him. And church, we need to be reminded of this this morning. Amen? We need to be reminded that those who leave all and abandon all and rest in Jesus and follow Him, there's going to be times where that calls for sacrifice. There's going to be times to where it involves faith. And this teaches us that Jesus has called the discipleship most directly here to Peter, is a call to trust His will and His way of doing things. We see here that Jesus provides here in a way that Peter will never forget. Matthew six twenty four, Jesus has already taught in a number of passages He reminds His disciples that no man can serve two masters. In church, we need to be reminded of this as well. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. But friends, you cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. Notice here, this call to disciples involves a reminder for us to not worry about what will come. Behold the shepherding work of Christ in Peter's life. Back in Matthew 6, and I'm sure Peter is being remembered of what Jesus has said, where he has said, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than the food and the body more than clothing? Look to the birds of the air, for they... Neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Listen, Peter's been following Jesus. Jesus, the scripture tells us, has nowhere to lay his head. He's staying in Peter's house. But Peter doesn't know how he's going to pay for this tax either. This is an obligation that's been brought to him. He's been following Jesus. He's been obeying the will of the Lord. What now, Jesus? Jesus. There's a bill that's due that I can't pay because I've been following you. I've been doing everything you said. What now? What does this teach us? Friends, it teaches us that God will provide for all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Not everything we've ever dreamed, not everything that we desire, but when we follow him, he will be, excuse me, he will not be your debtor. When you follow him, and you do his work and his will, his way for his glory. Jesus will provide for everything you need. He makes that clear. In fact, he says, as we've seen the previous calls of discipleship, those who would not come, Matthew chapter 8, because their father's not dead yet and they're waiting to settle the state. He's already told those disciples, you're not worthy of following me. And now he tells this disciple, Peter, who is worthy of following him in the sense of he's abandoned all that. He leaves his home, he leaves his wife, he leaves his mother-in-law. Now said, say, whoa, 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 whoa LeGrand. Scripture doesn't say Peter had a wife, but it does say he had a mother-in-law. I've never known somebody to have a mother-in-law that doesn't have a wife. Just to be technical and be clear. He leaves them, serves with Christ, follows him, does his will. How is he going to take care of his obligations? Behold this beautiful miracle where Jesus builds Peter's faith and provides for him exactly what he needs. I want to point out this as well. A third point, Jesus uses his disciples in such a way that God gets all the glory, and that man is reminded, Peter specifically, we, by extension today, we're reminded of our dependency upon him. And I just want to remind us, church, if all of our labor and our ministry, if my discipleship and if your discipleship is always explained by our wisdom and prudence and foresight and care, it could just be that we're not walking by faith, in it, we're actually walking by sight. If we never find ourselves depending upon God and find ourselves in situations where we say, God, I don't know how this is going to work unless you come through and provide. If we never find ourselves there, it could just be that we're not following Jesus as he's called us to follow him. Jesus delights in working in such a way to where we are reminded and built and strengthened to rest and to trust in him. Specifically, Peter is an experienced fisherman, a commercial fisherman, but here Jesus calls him to humble himself and take his little line and his little hook and to go fishing on his Mickey Mouse pole, his beginner pole, and to pull up not 10,000 fish, all of which Peter says, oh, I can do that. I can reap in a bunch of fish, Lord. And Jesus says, We don't need you to do that, Peter. We just need you to pull in one fish. So take this hook and just go down there, and you'll find exactly what you need. And this calls Peter to obey. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 6 reminds us as the church, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised. God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh should glory in his presence but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let him who glories let him glory in the lord church i just want to remind you the call of jesus in our school of faith and the testing of jesus that he wants us to go through is regularly done in such a way and a reminder that doesn't make sense to us It actually involves our giftings, and we think, oh, I got this. I know what I'm doing here, but Jesus says, I'm calling you, I'm equipping you, but I want you to use your gifting like this. I want you to do it my way, not your way, my way. Why, Lord, 1 Corinthians 1, 29, so that no man will glory in his presence. Church, it's just a reminder to us, we walk by faith and not by sight. May the Lord keep us from being lifted up in pride. Romans 12, thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And may we be found at the feet of Jesus saying, Lord, we humble ourselves as a little child and rest in you and your word. So much more that we could pull out here. But I want to say this final conclusion of application that we put here. Is it how is Peter commended and excuse me, commanded to do what Christ is asking him to do. It's simply by this, by faith and obedience. Peter hears the command of Christ. And this miracle would not happen in the sense of, as we see here in the text, if Peter just says, yeah, I'm not doing that. How is this miracle conveyed to us? The full completion of this miracle is seen in the obedience of Peter. And as Peter goes forth and as he finds this coin to pay the tax, which is the temple tax, All of it points back to Jesus. Peter takes Jesus at his word. He obeys. I will just tell you, there is no obedience without action and fruit. We can't just say it. We have to follow through on it. Peter follows through on it, and he's obedient. And as Exodus chapter 30, as we saw, reminded us that this tax was a picture of the atonement. We already have seen that Jesus is greater than the temple, yet he still pays for the tax it's not because he's under obligation but it's because he's working on the behalf of others namely peter and others who do not understand the whole of the gospel and if you remember jesus is the high priest who pays jesus is the temple peter goes and obeys and by faith gets the coin but he doesn't pay for his own tax he pays for it by the provision of christ the one Who did not owe pays the payment. What does that sound like, church? That is the gospel. Peter obeys by simple faith and resting what Jesus instructs him to do. He gets the coin. He makes the payment. In fact, this is the only miracle that Jesus performs that in this way, most immediately and directly impacts his immediate Need. This was of the will of the Father, of course. John 17, 17, Jesus says, I've done your will. I've completed everything you've ordained and called me to do. We understand that. But the one who does not owe pays for his followers. Friends, Jesus has paid the tax, and he's paid the tax for you. He's taken care of all of it. This is the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel. This is what Jesus was giving them in summary. At the very beginning, an odd story, but one that completes the purpose that Jesus intended. Well, if you're listening to me this morning, and the Holy Spirit has opened your heart and you see your need for Christ. Let me just encourage you. Let me invite you. Let me command you. Let me implore you to come to Jesus and rest in him, rest in his provision, rest in his righteousness, rest in his work. Not by anything that you can do or want to do. It will not save. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy he has saved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that your spirit will take it and enlighten it and nail it all the way home to our hearts. Lord, like Peter, may we look to you as the author and finisher of our faith. Even though we may not always understand what is happening or what is taking place, may we rest in the authority of your word. May we obey what you command us to do. and May, may we rest in your finished work, the work that has paid all that is owed. Father, we rest in the work of your son. We recognize that it was our sin debt that nailed him to the tree. Father, we recognize that he paid our punishment. That he has become salvation for us, his people, as we call upon the name of the Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father, we pray that this morning that there would be some who are awakened to their need for Christ. They've recognized that they're actively, they're working for their salvation. They're trying to make up for sin and make up for mistakes. And they're hoping that by being here this morning, they can make you happy with them. Father, may we rest not in our works our attempts, may we rest in what Jesus said, it is finished. We believe that. We rest in that. Lord, we pray that you would bring many sons and daughters to glory today because of the message and the authority of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.